Welcome back to Sloydcast. This is your host, Mark Angelini, and I'm joined by Mike Hanna, 60K Sloyd. Sloyd. And we're back. We made it back. We yeah. took a little hiatus there since last June, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike and I both have toddlers. I have a newborn. And uh, yeah, it's just been <laughs> basically just had to put on the back burner to yeah. make sure life could run smoothly. Mm-hmm. But we're back today, and we've got a really special guest that we're excited to have on the show. Really special. And uh, we want to do a little segment here, a new segment. I need some jingles. I need like a, <laughs> I need like a reggae horn. Um, I, I am the person that does all the Instagram usually, and I've been off Instagram for, I don't know, six, eight months probably. Like another hiatus. Um. So I thought it'd be cool to just check in, see what people are doing on the internet uh, when it comes to Sloydcast. We've been getting an amazing reception to the podcast. Um, Mike and I were just looking at some of the analytics for the downloads, and it's like way more than I ever imagined would be, uh, yeah. like thousands of downloads. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's amazing. Thank you to everyone that listens. It's really uh, humbling and kind of Inex- inexplicable maybe i don't know motivating for me yeah motivating there you go <laughs> yeah. um so in this little segment we're just going to go back to our instagram and check in on some comments that people have made um basically just shout out some people that are you know making an effort to big up the podcast so uh, i'm gonna go back to our julia kaltoff episode and shout out to carving journey Derek b and andrea uh, andrea grad for your comments on that episode and to everyone that likes the post it shares them you know it seems corny in this day and age everyone's trying to get you to like and share and subscribe yeah but in the, the reality is it does help and uh the more people that learn about the podcast you know hopefully the more people get inspired to go do this stuff um then we had our little bonus episode back in june which was basically just a bunch of us goofing off and carving and turning um, and that was a surprisingly popular episode, even though it was really short. Um, but yeah, shout out to, so we got okay. Grandma on here, spent some comments, <laughs> pine warbler, Woodshop, Alexander Wildman, and, uh, Steve over at, uh, shade tree woodcraft. Who's, uh, our local, who's a Lynchburg local here and, uh, really big Sloyd enthusiast who was, uh, just so excited to come in with other people that are interested in this stuff and then we got some guy at peddler mills craft who's that i don't know <laughs> <laughs> we got somebody commenting on his own post over here that's mike um yeah shout out to everyone that is engaging with us on on the instagram and thanks for hanging out over there even though you know we don't update you very often but we will be here um hopefully as things settle out for myself especially yeah uh, our goal is to just, you know, do as much as we can, interview as many people as we can throughout the year. We had pretty high expectations when we first started trying to do one a month, and that just became a little bit too stressful to have such a rigid schedule. So we're just doing as many as we can. And so uh, today we're joined by Emmett uh, Von, uh, I'm going to script your last name, <laughs> Emmett Von Dreisch. Let him say it. <laughs> you can say it however you want. Everyone in my family says it differently. Okay. Is it Dutch? Uh, Flemish. Flemish, okay. Uh, Emmett von, honestly, I always say Emmett von Dreisch in my mind, so that's what I'm going to say. Right? Van Dreisch. Uh, van Dreisch, okay. Van Dreisch. So welcome, Emmett. Um, appreciate you coming on the show, and 
I had something else to say, but lost left my mind. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Um, so I've been, uh, you, well, I was actually just thinking the other day, uh, you know, leading up to talking to you, I was just thinking back to, I think the first time I really encountered you on Instagram, I think you started following me at some point and you were really new to spoon carving. I remember, uh, I just remember some particular spoons, uh, that stuck out in my mind. You were doing a lot of painted spoons. Mm. Um, you were carving like maybe like maple, some kind of light wood, and you were doing a lot of painting on the handles. And that just stuck yep. out in my mind for some reason. And I, I was drawn to your work because I'd actually heard about your tree farm years, many years prior to that. Yep. Um, so it was kind of, and it was kind of just a weird little like circle was closed when you started following me on Instagram. I was like, Oh wait, that's the guy that does the coppice Christmas trees. So anyway, right, and that, that coppice agroforestry book finally came out this year. Yeah, exactly. Like nice. uh, 15 years <laughs> later, Fifteen years later. <laughs> no, I think it was, I think it was about 10 years. Um, and tens of thousands of spoons later, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, you've, you know, you've, um, your career has really grown, but like an amazing amount. And I think you're just in my mind, you're one of the, one of the more inspiring people that's taken this on as a profession. And I'm really intrigued to pick your brain about just kind of how you've gone about it and the way you've built this really robust business around spoon carving. And obviously you've got the Christmas tree farm we can talk about as well. Um, but yeah, I'm just really intrigued by the way you built your business. I think it's a cool model that anyone could, you know, kind of follow in the footsteps of. So, um, how about you let the listeners know where you live and just give us a little bit of a synopsis of, you know, what you do, what your life is like. Sure. Uh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I live in Western Massachusetts. I live half an hour from where I grew up. We live half an hour from where my wife grew up, which is why we live here. We, we met when we were on the coast of Maine and we thought about doing the groovy coast of Maine thing, but then we realized we'd be silly to have our kids that far away from our grandparents when we could literally have our kids within spitting distance of them. So we moved back home and um, yeah, I, I would say the spoon carving for me started because of the Christmas tree. So we, mm. when I met my wife, she was a vegetable farmer. Um, okay. uh, up on the Blue Hill Peninsula near where Elliot Coleman has his farm. Yeah. And, um, and I always wanted to try farming. I, I was a tall ship sailor at the time. I, I'd worked on a number of different sailing ships around the U S and, hmm. and, um, I decided to leave that and try farming with her and we tried farming and, and turns out we both love farming, but we didn't like farming together. Hmm. Um, it was not our marriage to be to, to be working together because um my wife doesn't like being self-employed but she definitely doesn't want me to be her boss <laughs> and, and, and i like i like being self-employed but i have no desire to be her boss yeah. um yeah. so we uh we decided to stop vegetable farming right when we decided to start having kids and we landed at this tree farm, just renting a part of a farmhouse from this old timer who was looking to turn over the tree farm to somebody. And he kept saying, Hey, you know, you seem like a young, a promising young man. You want to mm -hmm. take over this tree? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. We're, you know, we're not farming anymore. And, uh, but it was right during the recession of 08 mm. and there were no jobs. And I was whatever, 24, 25 and casting about trying to figure out how to do something with my life that wasn't sailing or farming and feeling like I had no skills and no, no sense of how to make 
a life that I wanted in this place since we were going to be here and yeah. not follow up. And so I took over the tree farm and turns out I really liked it. And then from the tree farm came the spoon carving because I had all these people coming to buy Christmas trees and we were super poor. And I was thinking, surely I could sell something else to these people while they're here. Hmm. Um, it is Christmas after all. <laughs> and, and, uh, it took me a, a handful of years to sort out the spoons. Uh, but basically, when our second daughter was born, I was the primary parent um, holding down the, the home fort at that point. And I just figured there must be something I could do with my time besides wash dishes and do laundry and change diapers and mm -hmm. sort of keep an eye on her. But she was at that age where she she should be exploring things a little independently, right? I mean, obviously when you want to interact with it, but you also want them to have lots of time rolling around in the grass. And I thought, oh, I should be doing something. I, you know, I ought to be doing something. And so uh, we had all this firewood stacked on our front porch and I was standing on the porch, looking at her rolling around in the grass and thinking I should do something with this firewood and I could sell it at the farm. And so I started making little spatulas. Nice. And yeah. And, and that quickly became an important thing for my mental health. And, mm. and, um, at night I would put her to bed and kind of hang out in the room out of sight of her crib until she settled down. And I'd just, I would go online and go to people's blogs and read everything I could about spoon carving and mm. click through to their Instagram. And I spent years ghosting people's Instagram before I ever had a cell phone of my own. Interesting. Um, wow. Yeah. So it was, it was by the time I came across you, Mark, I had been carving for maybe five years. Okay. Um, wow. And gone through much of the sort of early trajectory of most people's careers, sort of completely on my own outside the public view. Yeah. And then, and then only got on Instagram, bought a cell phone, all that stuff when I decided I wanted to try and do it professionally or semi-professionally. Hmm. That's fascinating. Wow. What an incredible journey. Yeah. Well, and the, I'd say the other interesting thing that has informed my journey from the start was that it was always about making money. Yeah. It was always, I mean, it became about mental health afterwards, but from the get go, it was how can I sell things? Cause I need the money right. to support my family. You know, I mean, you guys understand this having young kids, but the 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 mental health component of of having young kids is so important, and and keeping yourself uh, feeling healthy and feeling happy um, whilst while subordinating so much of your life to the needs of your family is is a really tricky thing for everyone and i think that's something that food carving has really served a tremendous role in my life that i i, I have such a debt to it that i can never really repay hmm. that's yeah. pretty cool yeah yeah i second that i think that was for me having a kid was probably the most rewarding and also toughest thing i've done in my life <laughs> yeah for sure and it, it and, still is <laughs> And layer that with that. I mean, I was going through a real crisis at the time of how do I support my family and feeling like a failure for not supporting them sufficiently. I mean, mm -hmm. we were really poor for a lot of years. Yeah. And, and, and that sense of like, you know, I'm, I'm a smart guy. I'm a, I'm a industrious guy. Like, 
how can I figure this out and feeling, feeling bad about myself for not being willing to just go get a nine to five job. Mm, um, I can relate to that so much. Not being willing to go get a nine to five job was, it was a real needle to thread. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really cool how those challenging moments in our lives, they really push us through these, like through a threshold and then depending on yeah. how it goes for you. And if you really persevere, like you can't turn back and you kind of, you end up in this new realm and I feel like you can unlock yeah. so much possibility and um, potential that you didn't have before that challenge. You know, that's, right. that's what I've experienced at least. Yeah. Yeah. I, and yeah. so when, when I, when I got in touch with you, Mark, I was going through, so I, I had, I had sorted out sort of how to have a career cobbling together work in a bunch of different ways. But uh, when I wanted to make the spoon carving part of how I made a living, I think I must have sensed that there was a larger career, larger opportunity to be had from it because I had a wave of ambition around that time. Like I have never experienced hmm. before to make this thing work. And, and an ambition, like I've always been smart enough to just like, do well without having to really be ambitious about it and so like having ambition was a real it was a different feeling for me um but but it and i'd always associated it as being something bad right like you're mm -hmm. ambitious and yeah go out, right but but no it was like this ambition to make it work so that we could have a better life mm. um and that that was really where i was at when i first mm. got in touch wow that's so cool man and yeah. I mean, look at how far you've come too. It's, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> I mean, all the perseverance and just the, the ability to, to go through all the ups and downs and, and having consistency and staying motivated through all the struggle. And then finally get into something that is, pays off. Yeah. That pays off in the end. I mean, that's commendable, man. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, I can't imagine. No, the kids growing up helps also. Yeah, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I've I've also been impressed with how you've you've been very transparent about you know what why you do it and kind of sharing that whole process of building this business and all the different systems you've come up with and um, even speaking openly about you know the type of money you're making because um, I, I I've never tried to live off of any of my woodwork I mean I've, it's basically a glorified hobby and always has been for me um, mm -hmm. even though I've made money off of it. Um, and I've tried to make more money and not succeeded, but, um, I, I found, especially when I came up just cause I kind of had that in my mind, well, maybe I could do this and be like a part of my living. Um, I just remember following a lot of these, you know, some of the, the more popular people out there and you have no sense of like how much money they're making. You can see what they sell their stuff for, but it's hard to really come up with like yeah. a figure and then reverse engineer it. Right to get a sense of like what the market is and all that stuff. So yeah. you've, and it's interesting. I think it's really interesting how you've, you've really built your own unique market in your own little lane. Um, you know, you're kind of pulling in people that aren't even part of the Sloyd woodworking world. You've, you've right. cast a broader net to, I don't know how you describe your demographic, but it seems like it's more of this broad net and you're not like pigeonholing yourself to a niche. Yeah. Mm. Well, certainly, I think I, I think I definitely, I do some stuff that's really just for the the people who are in the spoon carving scene, and then I, I think my work tends to appeal to people who are on Instagram but are not part of the spoon carving scene at all. Yeah. And and right, and, you know, 
same time I sell spoon blanks and that's only going to people who carve spoons. True, true. Um, but, but I think, um, but I'm always amazed at the diversity of that, right? Like I had a woman reach out to me the other day who, as our, as we got further into a conversation about me making her some spoon blanks and she was excited about my latest book because I'm a lefty and he's a lefty and it's so helpful for her to see photos of lefties doing the thing. <laughs> turns out she's, turns out she's 87 years old. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> awesome. I was like, you can imagine how, you know, I need, to, I need a little help with the spoon blanks. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. But, That's incredible. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think there's a lot more diversity out there than we realize. And, and part of what I came to recognize when I started using Instagram was that the more of my full life that I shared, not only the more of a deep relationship did I create with the people following me, but that it, it pulled in people who weren't part of the spoon carving scene who were just interested in my life. Yeah. Um, you could say, Oh, well that's, you know, how narcissistic of you, but it, but from a, <laughs> but from a business standpoint, those are the people you want because Seriously. frankly, nobody, nobody needs a wooden spoon. They buy a wooden spoon because they, it reminds them of the feeling they have when they think about you living your life and mm-hmm. some of your life is something that they want to be reminded of for their own purposes, you know, and we do this with everybody yeah. in our lives. You know, we're all doing this to each other all the time. Yeah. So it, I don't feel badly about it, but it, it was a good reminder for me to, that everyone can feel that way about my work. It doesn't have to be other people who are into spoon carving. Yeah. Mm. It's funny you say that, man. I've, I've been, I've struggled so much with social media ever since I started mm-hmm. using it because I, I I'm just, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just a hard headed person. That's probably part of it. That's probably a big part. You of are. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have, I have a witness who can vouch for it. Um, but like just that willingness to share so much, I've just, I don't know what it is. There's something about it. I'm so averse to it, but you're so right, right. that when you do, right. you create this, uh, like in a, maybe it's a cheesy way to say it, but like this buy-in to your kind of lifestyle or image or quote unquote brand. Right. Um, and I see it all the time. Like my wife follows a bunch of different people and, um, my mom's always telling me about people on YouTube you're that not, she follows. And you're not wrong though, Mark, right? Cause the, the thing that you are wary of is the, is the pitfall of doing exactly that, right? Mm-hmm. You're wary of having your life and, um, essentially of leading a hollow life where you are presenting one way, but it's not actually reflecting your reality right. and, and of of your life feeling hollowed out by the amount that you are sharing. And that, that's a real, Mm. that's a, that's a very legitimate concern and, Mm. and being able to walk in an authentic way using social media is something that first of all, I'm sure is specific to each person, but, but also it's like a never ending dialogue with yourself of, what am I willing to do? What am I not willing to do? You know, one of the things that came in, for instance, um, when reels became a big thing on Instagram was mm-hmm. me grappling for me was grappling with, am I willing to do this? Am I willing to use this? Mm-hmm. You know, I can see how people use reels. Uh, here's a great example. Um, I've noticed this in the last couple of weeks that there's a new type of reel where people will overlay over the video it's the video is almost nothing it's a it, there's nothing to it but they'll overlay the, like bubbles of of graphic of of text 
that sort of one pops up and then another pops up and then another pops up and then another pops up, right? It's like, here's five things that you should know. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> There's no way you can read all five of them by the time the reel finishes. So you watch the reel again uh. so you can read the one and then again so you can read the third one, right? So they have coerced you into juicing their numbers oh, by the way that they created yes. the reel. Do you yes. see what I'm saying? Yeah, oh, yeah. And so I've seen it. Right. Like when you're aware of that, first of all, you, you know, to some extent, you just have to like do your slow golf clap and say, you know, well played. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but you, also, I don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's unfortunate that Instagram has to constantly change the way that their their social media um, their social media is being used, so the masses can kind of subscribe to it and and just it increases their numbers. And then I mean, but on the receiving end, those that are pursuing a business on Instagram, they are constantly having to stay up to date on all these different tactics and yeah. techniques to to reach whoever they're trying to reach and generate more revenue. I mean, it's, I, I guess, yeah. I mean, part of what I've tried to figure out is to what extent does playing the game actually increase my bottom line? And, right. and, right. What, and if it doesn't, then what actually does? Because what I've found is yeah. that... So true. I've, yeah. I've talked to people on in the spoon carving scene who've, who've gained a hundred thousand followers in the last year yeah, through yeah. doing real it has not improved their business really at all isn't that crazy except except for if they took the instagram bonuses in which uh, case huh. it was a you know it was all over the place sometimes it was a lot sometimes it was not but they were definitely sort of felt coerced into playing the game what's the instagram bonus i'm out the loop yeah i mean oh so. yeah so we're, <laughs> we're started to pay you based on the number of reels, sort of like how Spotify plays, plays uh, people. Who, oh, weird. So the more reels you have and the more, the more views, views those reels have, the more. you into the thing. Oh, wow. And, you know, whereas what I've come to realize is, is I want Instagram to, I, I insist that the way I use Instagram is a way that I will be proud of yeah. in a year, in five years, in 10 years. And yeah. I insist that it's something more than just create the business. So one of the things that has become obvious to me is how valuable it is for me to take these photos and make and capture these memories of all these moments in my life. And I wouldn't do it without Instagram. So I'm very grateful uh, to Instagram right. uh, essentially giving me a reason to do that. Yeah, that's right. very true. Yeah, I think and, it's a constant struggle for someone who crafts like to, to either, you know, um, kind of just be vulnerable and let the Instagram, uh, you know, algorithm let it uh, into your yeah, mind. dictate your decisions <laughs> about how you, you know, put yourself out there or you stay true to your agenda and like what you feel is most important to you about how you develop those connections with your customers and those that are interested in your life. And I think, I think the tricky thing is that if you are struggling to gain traction with your business, you feel like, well, I could do this thing and that would, you know, maybe that would work, right? You see other people and it be working for them. But one of the things that I learned the hard way from Instagram back before I even had Instagram, when I was just looking, you know, I had to click through from somebody's website and I was, you know, oh, yeah. checking different people's websites and, and clicking through just to see if they'd posted something that day was that, like you said, with almost everybody, you have no idea whether what they're doing is actually working or not. Yeah. Right. And so when I started out, I I made assumptions about what would work for me yeah. based on what I thought was working for other people. And 
looking back now, I doubt it was even working for them because mm-hmm. it sure as heck. And so I think um, it's it, l- looking at other people and assuming that just because it, it's working based on some metric that it's actually working and helping them make a life that they that they want is almost always going to be false. Mm-hmm. And you need to find parent than that. You just hit, you just hit such a poignant nail on the head right there with creating the life you want. That's the work I do for my my main profession. Um, I help people basically create like farms, gardens, et cetera. And that's literally like the, I feel like a counselor sometimes trying to help people figure out what's the life they actually want. Mm. And that's, that's, I guess that's my greatest aversion to this kind of influencer, um, Thing that's happening right now where it's like everyone's trying to influence other people to i don't know basically make people think certain things about them um yeah yeah in the farming gardening homesteading whatever you want to call that world that's a very that's a very big problem i would say is there's a lot of people that like they think they want to do all these things because they see everyone you know doing it and they've got all these you know they've got all this produce or they've got all these animals and right and then when you actually do it you realize like i actually don't like doing that yes. or this yes. Um, and so you have to get clear on what you actually want your life to be like, and then yep. kind of reverse engineer from there. Right. Um, and then another and then one, I'll oh, go ahead. Please. Oh, I was just going to say, you also had another, a really poignant point with the Instagram thing is, um, we have an event that we do and we've been really trying to like up our social media game. And so we did, mm-hmm. you know, they say you got to post every day to make the algorithm, you know, whatever work. And so we did that. We've posted hundreds of things and looking back at the analytics, it literally was detracting from our success on Instagram. It was like, Mm. I'd spent all all this time making graphics and then you post it and like four people like it and like 20 people see it. And it's like, wait, that's that's not how it's supposed to work. Like the more you post, the more people are supposed to see it. So then it was a, it was a wake up call that you can't just follow a formula. You have to do what feels right to you. And then, you know, hopefully people will catch on and I don't know the algorithm game. You can maybe speak more to that because you have more experience, but um, yeah. Well, thought- so one of, one of, one of the sort of, one of the trade-offs that I have deliberately made is I, I can see that if, if I posted less, I would get more followers, mm. but if I posted less, I would get fewer sales. Mm or commissions from people yeah. because I commissions from people when I post something that appeals to them mm-hmm. and posting something that says, uh, Hey, if you want to buy this, send me a DM. I have lots of things that I'm promoting, right? <laughs> I have the magazine, yeah. I have the books I'm doing. I have the spoons. I have the blanks. Like each of those things needs a post every now and then. Yeah. And, and, Otherwise, it doesn't keep kicking that can down the road. And so, and then to not make it feel like I'm just selling people all the time, I also need to share other parts of my life that give that magic sense of yeah. like, oh, this is what they actually care about, right? So there's a certain amount of posting that I need to do just to get the right ratio of asking versus giving, and also a certain ratio of posting I need to do to keep the the orders flowing in, and that is in many ways, not the ideal ratio if I was just going for growth on Instagram. Yeah. Interesting. But 
business does much better. So it's, you know, I have to be able to, I have to sort of have the track record to be able to see that and then the faith to believe that it'll actually work. Yeah. And, you know, to some extent you build that over years and I've been doing it for enough years now that I can, I can, I can sense that it, it will work. And I think also the fact that I work off of a wait list yeah. means that if it feels like it stops working, I've got a runway sure. and I won't be immediately. Nice. nice. Yeah. That's it. I've been really impressed by that format that you use and uh, it probably is one of the more critical tools that you use, I imagine, just because it gives you, you can plan around that. Yeah. And it also means that everything I do is, is sold yeah. already. Right. So, yeah. You know, there, there's never that, uh, the waste of you carve a bunch of things to go to a market and then the market is bad because the weather's bad yep. right. and then you go up and then you're trying to sell it online and right it's like it's it's about as efficient as i can make it yeah um well i'm giving me that stability going forward of knowing i've got three or four months worth of orders lined up hmm. and they're all the time and you know by the time i get to that it'll you know my books will be closed for the year and it, like it just it means that the, there's only one limiting factor to how much i earn which is how much do i work yeah it must be such a relief to like know you have some financial security there because you you you've already people have already you know paid for this and I just have to do the work now and to some degree, like I know I've done some markets. Mark and I have done some markets. Like just the anxiety of thinking, man, am I gonna sell this? Am I not gonna sell this? I put so much work into this. Hopefully it sells. Like, you know, it's got to be hard. Yeah, it's it's exhausting, and I I did that at first. I mean, that was one of the things I because I. As a young adult, I, I did a lot of farmers markets as a vegetable farmer. I thought I can do markets, you know, yeah. I, I know exactly how to make this work. Like we had a kick-ass stand at the, at the market. We were the, the cornerstone place and sold thousands of dollars of stuff. And, and I think I figured out a little bit about how to do markets, like the psychology of how to do markets. If you're, if you're carving something like spoons, at least for my local area, by the time I was done, it was not it was not worth doing even yeah. then compared to having a wait list. Um, and then certainly when you factored in just the, the mental torment of, <laughs> you know, it, uh, the, the sense of rejection you get when mm. 95 people walk right by and of the 5% that stop, almost none of them buy anything. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about social media is that it protects you from the millions of people who see your stuff and are not interested. You yeah, know, you right. get, you get that one order and you you feel the joy of the one order and you don't feel the sting or the rejection of the mm -hmm. thousands of people who did not order from you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm very grateful for that because it, it allows me to exist in a space where I, I can focus on doing the work um, instead of, instead of having my sense of self-worth be defined by, by, the balance of rejection and acceptance that I get at a market, I'm instead focused on doing good work. Yeah. Not to mention all the effort that people don't, they haven't never done markets that goes into just preparing for it is yeah. it, it can be, it can be substantial depending on how you do it. Certainly. Yeah. 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 You know, interestingly, the thing that I found worked best at markets was to show up with a basket full of things that I kept under the table mm. and only put out three or four things at a time and mm. sit next to a little table sort of and, and be carving and just have a few things on a table. Mm. Um, it increased people's 
willingness to come up and interact with me. Whereas if when I had a big table full of all my stuff, I think it looked a little desperate. And I think oh, people yeah. Yeah. away from going over to me because I had so much that obviously I wanted to sell mm. that it, it felt like there, was, there would be too much pressure on them. Right. Whereas when there were just a handful of things, it was like, oh, what are you doing? You know, and then we right. had a conversation and interested in it. They buy something. It also simplified their choices, right? It's like sure. people want to choose chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. They don't want 27. <laughs> right. And it simplified yeah. their choices. They went away happy. And then I pulled another spoon out of the basket and put it on the table, right? And so psychologically, that worked better, but it still, it, it still was not as efficient. Yeah. Um, well, that it's so the whole thing's been working out for you, and I've, I I just checked your Instagram the other day, just kind of getting my mind prepared for this chat, and I saw you posted yeah. something about how you're gonna do like six figures with your self employment this year, which is kind of staggering to realize. But that's the goal is to is to get there. So um, that's putting together the Christmas tree farm, um, the spoon carving business, and then the magazine. That's awesome. Um, and, and, and the book will come out this year. So it okay. is, it is possible that I will hit six figures, Man. Um, but I might not, you know, I mean, right. that's the, that's the thing with self-employment, but <laughs> yes, I mean, it's, it's been a long time coming and I almost didn't see it ever as a possibility. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you stack enough things on top of each other, you start to make a house. Yeah. That's No, that's, I think that's really inspiring and encouraging at least to me it is um i have found that there may be the type of people that are drawn to sloyd or maybe um a little more i don't know this is a generalization i could be totally wrong but it tends to attract i think people that maybe are, don't really care about money and um maybe are averse to money in some degree so well just, that was me yeah. <laughs> that was me for, for most of my most of my life i, I assume that the, in order to lead the life I wanted, I was going to have to be poor. Yeah. Um, and and was okay with that. But then having a family definitely felt the pinch of that. You know, yeah. it sucks to not have enough money. And and for many years during my spoon carving journey, uh, I was the sole breadwinner. My wife went back to school to finish her bachelor's and then go to nursing school. Hmm. And so for five and a half years, it was all me. Wow. Um, and and that was a real well that was the period where i had all that ambition right was yeah. like okay this is all you now like sort it out son <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know and, and and then she started working again and things got a lot easier financially yeah. but but by then i had i had sorted enough things out that i i was in a different place than i was prior to that so i, I don't i don't think it's necessarily good for people to go through those pinch points because it might not work out but right. there is something about that kind of catalyst that gets you to a different place in your own head about what you actually want out of life yeah it's i just think it's so cool how you've you just built on successes like you mentioned you got the tree farm the spoon carving business which has various different avenues with you know you make the different the burnishing tools and the even like the tea, the tea towels, is that what it is? Um, yeah, we haven't done those in a while, but uh, yeah, that was a, that was a pandemic thing. It was, there was a print shop that was looking to keep some people employed. So okay. I uh, had some tea towels to, to give them some work to do and, and we sold them. Nice. Um, 
I, I, I mean, just to be clear, everything I've done has at either failed or almost failed mm. at least once in, its, in <laughs> the course of so, you know, let's not call them successes. Let's call them sort of things I've stuck with enough that have worked out of yeah. the many things I've Yeah, there's a uh, saying that uh, I heard from Joel Salatin, which is suck, 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 success. Yeah. <laughs> so success involves a lot of stuttering. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, let's talk about the magazine. Um, sure. That seems like something that's kind of grown naturally. I know you, you and Matt... Um, is it Matt White? I always forget because I always yeah. mix up people's yeah. like handles, mm-hmm. Instagram handles with yep. their real names. Matt White. Um, depending on what it is. Um, you guys started that together, what? Was that like five years ago now? Four years ago. Yeah. Four years yep. ago. Okay. Four, yeah. Four and a half, I think. Yeah. Closing in on closing in on five now. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, it kind of grew out of you just doing tutorial videos. Is that right? Right. We uh, We had gone to... Pat Diet's uh, irregular spoon gathering, mm-hmm. um, and been really inspired by how everyone had their own way of doing things, and felt like wouldn't it be great if there was a some project where we got people to contribute their ways of doing things, and then we tried doing that, and nobody wanted to contribute stuff because they were all, you know, it's a it's a hassle to <laughs> to I don't know contribute something like. It, it, that's a it was a it was a bridge too far and so we sure. so we ended up using the channel to essentially talk about the nitty-gritty little details of how we did things in a way that we wished was out there um and people really liked it and then at a certain point i thought to myself you know i feel like the scene could really use a magazine and mm. i could really do a magazine like i was a writer and so i felt like you know ah the writing part doesn't scare me the editing part doesn't scare me um you know the tech the like actual like how do you put a the system together to print it and ship it that scared me but i managed to figure it out um but i i realized sort of in the same way that like the skateboarding scene got thrasher right wasn't that oh, yeah. the magazine oh yeah right and it was at a certain point there's enough people that they want a magazine so they can read about it, the thing and then i thought to myself i could interview people and ask how they made a living doing it and i learned <laughs> <laughs> so um i didn't feel confident enough to start it by myself and so i asked matt if i could do it sort of under the spoonosaurus thing with him and he was very kind and he said yes um okay so. yeah we're i've got a couple uh issues you had sent me maybe like two years ago now um and uh it's very well made i mean it's a super high quality uh do you do all the um layout and stuff I do not. Okay. Yeah. So that the the high qualityness of it is entirely due to uh, my friend Mike Merritt, okay. who uh, is uh, a spoon carver, but also in his professional life does layout and video editing. Uh, and he reached uh, out. I think it, after issue number three or four, you know, I I did do the format for the first couple ones, and you can tell, you know, it was <laughs> definitely under the premise of like let's get started and see what happens and sure. it, i was right at the point where i was really floundering like i was not that kind of stuff is not my forte when he reached out and said would you like some help doing this That's <laughs> I awesome. said, yes and he is he is top quality like he is he is absolutely amazing at what he does and so 
it's a nice balance now where, where I do the interviews and I write some articles and I, I interact with all the contributors and gather all the stuff. And then I send everything to him in, you know, collated into folders and then he can just, he just assembles it and sends it to me and I edit it and then we, we get it printed. So nice. it's, yeah, but the, but the professional feel of it is all my. Okay. That's very high quality. I mean, I, as a graphic designer myself, I appreciate the, uh, the layout. Um, the, I mean, I, we, it's, we have, uh, let's see, you sent us episode zero or episode <laughs> <laughs> issue zero, one and four and seven. It looks like. Yeah. Um, you can see the jump from four to seven, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Actually, I think yeah. four, it looks like four was when he must've gotten on board. Cause that. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe that was, is that the one with, uh, Dave Rowanbush? Yep. On the cover, black. Yep, cover. Yep. Yeah. So how so, many how many subscribers do you have to the uh, magazine now? We're at about six hundred and fifty right now. Wow, nice. That's amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Yep. So, and they're coming from about twenty five countries around the world. Holy moly, that's so cool. That's great. Within the U.S., but then the solid third is is international. Um. And this is all, I mean, this is like self-published. You're not working with totally self-published. Yeah, no, I, I get it printed at the local copy shop. Really? Where Randy, Randy hooks me up. And, That's awesome. Uh, and um, yeah, and then I, I bring it, I bring all the stuff to the post office and I use stamps.com to print the domestic labels. But then I found that it actually saves a lot of money if I make my poor post office friends do all the international labels because it <laughs> saves me a couple hundred bucks in shipping. Oh wow! Um, nice. Uh, yeah, so they're they're very they're very kind, and they do that for me. <laughs> That's incredible, man. I love that you're supporting yeah. your local print shop too, because we have a we still have an old mom and pop print shop in town here, and I just love going in there and giving them business. And yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's so much different than going to like Staples, which is like one of the most despotic places I've ever been recently. <laughs> just like so <laughs> sterile, and you just feel yeah. like a minion when you're in there. Um, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, man. and I used to feel bad about going to the post office with all my stuff, and then somebody pointed out to me that I'm probably really good for their oh yeah bottom justification of why we should still have a post office in this little town. Absolutely. You know, you you know you really embody like an old school New Englander in my mind. Like you've got the mixed <laughs> the mixed income. You do everything kind of grassroots. You're supporting your local print shop and post office. I mean, it's really like I feel like. You're almost like an Eric Sloan book. Ah, well, I do love it. Thank you. I'll take the top. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are such good. But it's, just, it's so cool, man. It's so inspiring to just know that it's possible. You know, I think that's, I think in this day and age, you kind of, it's funny because you are very successful on Instagram and, and social media, which as we've been talking about this, a lot this episode, but you know, you, you're not like the typical, I don't know. just like I was saying, I feel like a lot of people that it's, I'm not sure of the words to use, but you kind of defy the mold of, you know, how to use social media. You're not really creating this fake thing to get people to buy in. It's just, you're just, it's just what you do. And, um, you're just using the big platform to get the word out. Yeah. It's well, very authentic. Things, thank you. One of the things that really helps is that I am keenly aware that my kids are watching me. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, absolutely. You know, and, and, I don't think it even occurs to me to do any of the 
stuff where you're like, oh, you kind of really sold out there because <laughs> yeah. you know, they're getting to an age now where, you know, we've told them you're not getting a phone until you're what, you know, we'll, we'll maybe get our 13 year old one of these phones that can only text. Okay. But, yeah. You know, you're not getting social media until you're 17, 18, maybe not even then. Yeah. You know, yeah. I guess it will be out of our hands. But, right. um, but they see me do it. Right. I mean, that they see me on my phone. I'm keenly aware when I am, you know, they look at what I post. They, my, my daughter listens to my podcast, right? Mm-hmm. The younger daughter, that's what we listen to the podcast that I do. It's like they, they I'm aware that there's an audience of them. And, and mm-hmm. I feel that that desire to be representing the values that I'm telling them. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good thing to keep you humble. Know that your kids are watching what you're doing and, yeah right if i didn't have kids i'd probably be much more tempted right you know without an audience of like you know don't screw this up you know i would i would for sure be more tempted because why wouldn't you be right Um, right it it is trippy man i have um my wife has a lot of young cousins and then i've got a couple nephews Mm -hmm. And yeah. I've, I've worked a lot with kids over the past few years, a lot of elementary school kids. And I was pretty naive to like how infiltrating this stuff really is into the youth. Um, yeah. When I worked, I mean, I, I do still work with elementary school kids, but when I was doing it a lot, I mean, I, there are kids that are eight years old that are have smartphones in their pocket and they're watching yeah. like explicit rap music videos. Their parents yeah. don't do any moderation of what they look at, you know, on the internet. Yeah. And it was just I mean, in that respect, I would actually say that me being on social media is actually one of the best things I could have done for my kids in this regard. Right. I mean, prior to deciding I wanted to make spoon carving part of my living, I was that guy who didn't even have a cell phone. Yeah. Right. And yeah. was and was awesome. disgusted by the whole thing. And right. And then I sort of read the tea leaves and was like, okay, if I want to do this for a living, Instagram is where it's happening right now. That means I need a phone. That means, okay, let's, let's do this. Yeah. And, but what that has given me, and I did not appreciate this at the time, but what that's given me is a, a valid voice for my girls to pay attention to, hmm. to say, Hey, you know, here's a model for how to do it healthily yeah. as healthily and I'm not claiming to be the, you know, the most healthy. I actually really admire Mark, the fact that you take months off <laughs> at a time, you know, like I think that's, that's really great. And is also a great model, but, but, but by, by making my living on it and by trying to engage with it thoughtfully, it actually gives me um, many more opportunities to talk about it with our girls and, yeah. and also give model of how you could use these things in a healthy, responsible way. And I, and from what I see, they they are not they are interested in using it someday for some purpose but they are not just mindlessly wanting clamoring to to, huh. to have a phone and get that's awesome um yeah, you've, and i think it's me on it yeah, you've given them a benchmark of kind of what's possible so they don't drift into the uh, degeneracy is what i would call what a lot of the stuff that's out there for that's that's targeting little kids especially mm. um I think also because I talk about it a lot, you know, and we're, and we're not, you know, we're, we are not a, we're not a strict family. Like we swear around our kids and, 
yeah but 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 we're very protective like they're totally scared of scary movies because we've never shown them anything (laughs) we're permissive in some ways and it's very strict in other ways and we just don't like we watch the great british baking show nice (laughs) but but we also um but we also prioritize eating dinner together every night right Mm, yeah and, and most nights of the week we don't watch something so it's there is both. And I think that's a really important thing because I grew that's up cool. in a family with TV and I found it very socially isolating to not have yeah. those touchstones that my peers had. Yeah. And there's a lot of honor that I put on back then that I have spent my adult life shedding. Yeah, and, yeah. And so that's the dark side of the other side of that coin of the kid who's watching explicit rap videos, right? It yeah. was me being exposed to any of it. <laughs> and sort of. And, and having a lot of psychological baggage that I had to let go of as I became an adult because of it. Yeah. I've, I've seen, I know, I know some people are very strict parents and their kids have been incredibly rebellious as they get older and like almost like out of spite, like indulge in what they weren't allowed to, you know, see or, or access. Kids want to rebel against something. So to some extent, I've had these conversations of like, what are we going to let them like, what are we going (laughs) to, you know, set up so that they rebel in this way that and that we're okay with, you know, like because for a while, for instance, when we, we would we would tell our older daughter, you know, when you want to go get a tattoo, just let us know. We'll all go get tattoos together. And then we were like, you know, it's actually not a bad thing to rebel with. Like maybe we should, you know, push back on it more and not make it something that we're gonna participate in because <laughs> it's a good thing for her to have that avenue of rebellion, you know? Yeah, yeah. Although sometimes they regret it. My sister, she were, I don't know if it was rebellion or not, but she got a lot of tattoos when she was younger. She's got a whole sleeve. Yeah. And now that she's yeah. turned 30, she's like, uh, I probably wouldn't have done that if, yeah. I, were, if I knew what I knew now. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm learning. I'm learning that you have to be firm but kind with kids. That's kind of been my, my approach to, to father and our daughter, who's just a little over two years old now. Healthy yeah. boundaries. Yeah. Healthy boundaries. That's right. That's right. I was going to say, Mike and I were both raised by uh, Mediterranean uh, fathers. <laughs> and if anyone's ever grown up Italian or Middle Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern then you, you get it. What, what, what's the stereotype of that? I'm not familiar. Uh, well, I'll just speak to my stereotype, which is very uh, emotional and passionate and prone to bouts of anger. Yes, <laughs> that's that's yeah. That sums up the Mediterranean region. Uh, all those countries there that kind of are on the Mediterranean. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's a lot of it's very emotional type parenting. You know, kind of like uh, they try to make you feel guilty. You know, they yeah. guilt you into everything. <laughs> you haven't. Right. My, my dad's. My dad will probably listen to this too, actually, because he listens to the <laughs> podcast. But. Uh, <laughs> Where Mike and I were commiserating, because um, I was like, "Man, my dad, he'll call me," and we haven't talked in like five or six weeks. And he's like, "You never call me." I'm like, "Sorry, man. I'm just, I got two kids. Like, I I would love to have the time to call you, but like, the it doesn't really come by very often." Yeah. And Mike was just commiserating with me how his dad the same thing is just does the same exact thing. <laughs> my mom is funny. She'll be like, "You know, I'll call her once a week or once every other day, and if I don't for like." Two or three days, she'll text me, and she won't even say hi. She'll just be like, "Where have you been hiding?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize really? it was like a Mediterranean it is. thing, but yeah. it, it is. I mean, I, I knew it was like a stereotypical Italian thing, but yeah, 
Um, but yeah. You know, one. I, I wonder if you guys feel this too, but one of the things that I found really interesting as I became a father was, was my relationship as a son. Mm. And it just, so I think I had sort of, when you're a kid, you, you just kind of don't even think about how you're still going to, your dad is still going to be your dad <laughs> for, the, right, for your whole right, life. Right. Like, you know, it's like, oh, my dad this is my dad while I'm a kid. And then when I'm an adult and there's a blank, right? <laughs> you don't even think that you're still going to be your dad. Yep. And there's something about having kids and, and thinking about what kind of dad you want to be that gives you this moment of, of recognizing that you're still a son to your dad and, and thinking about that dynamic and, and, and also, and also recognizing how little time we have with our parents after we leave the house. Yeah. Like yeah, the, the, very true. Forget what the statistic is, but it's like 80% of the time you're ever going to spend with your parents on average is spent by the time you're 18. Yeah. And yeah. You know, you can count on your hands probably the number of really meaningful experiences you're going to have with your parents from this point forward. Yeah, and you know, and and so I've and I don't know about you, but like my you know my dad had a health scare a number of years ago, and like mm -hmm. I don't take it for granted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been really an interesting part of my dynamic. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting perspective for sure. Yeah. Um. Mm. I mean, we could probably go all kinds of places with this Man, conversation. Where did this go? <laughs> <laughs> about um, parenting, marketing, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. That's the thing. Like, we actually got a really funny message last summer. I won't, I won't call anyone out by name, but someone gave us this kind of. It was just funny. It was like this very critical take on our podcast and my response was like hey man it sounds like you need to start your own podcast like, <laughs> the way we do it is the way we do it and we just have this open-ended conversation we don't have a bunch of questions lined up and like there's no structure <laughs> what did they wish that you were doing they wish that we had like they wish that we didn't talk about ourselves at all they wish that we had like a set of questions they he, the person i shall not name it was, um it was very we wish that it was more topic oriented yeah and they wish yeah. that they, they they literally told us that if we're not going to take it seriously we need to stop doing it yeah i guess it's well, not serious. i was like i heard a great, heard a great neil gaiman quote you know who neil gaiman is wrote, yeah yeah uh, the author yeah yeah the author. he he wrote something along the lines of when people tell you they don't like something they're often right about something mm. when they tell you what they want instead they're often wrong <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah it was like it was it wasn't feedback it was like hey this is how i want your podcast to be, to be yeah. and if you yeah. don't do it you better stop <laughs> right well that's the good thing about about all of these distributed technologies is that we can do it however we want to do yeah. it right. i'm sure i'm sure there's plenty of people don't like what we do and that's fine i mean we, the reason we started this is we want to have conversations with people that we quote unquote no online yeah. that we appreciate yeah. their work of and i feel like we offer some insights you're not going to get from a more like strictly craft focused perspective right. where it's like yeah. okay what tools do you use and like yeah what type of work do you, I mean, right. the magazine also is that like i'm always so curious about people and i want to know about their lives and i want to know what they're thinking and right. i want to know what shapes them and i want to know what they get out of their work and i want to know all of these things and almost nobody shares yeah that because yeah. they have boundaries and everyone's allowed to have whatever boundaries they want but 
I think what you guys do is tremendous because it's, it's giving people that richness of connection that they otherwise won't necessarily get because most people don't give that to you just on their own. They don't, I think a lot of people don't feel the agency to do that, that if they were to talk about that much, that who cares, right? It's yeah. like, why I talk about myself in that way? Yeah. Um, and what we're able to recognize is that we're humans are curious animal and we want to know these things about people. And to the extent that, uh, the connections we make online are, are a big part of the social fabric that makes up our lives that, right. that if they're too, if they're too specific to a topic and they, you don't get a sense of somebody's full life, then it actually impoverishes your social fabric. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes. That's very true. Well said there. Very I mean, true. the, the podcast kind of grew out of, we had, we, we've been having these small gatherings pretty uh, somewhat regularly with just people in the, in the general region. Mm -hmm. Um, and it kind of grew out of that, just having people get together and you end up having all these, you you come together for one reason, but then you just end up, you know, everyone's human. And so it's like, you get right. to learn more about who the person is and you have for these sure. interesting conversations or goof off or whatever it is. Yeah. And Talk about it go away thinking about how, what a great connection you had with all these people. You don't go away thinking, and I carved all these spoons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, exactly reason to do it but that was it right yeah actually um i uh at at our last meeting or our last gathering last uh last summer in the solstice yeah um i the one of my big projects i was working on was this handle for my the main axe i use for like making kindling and stuff and uh it's funny i just every time i use it i just kind of like have this thought in the back of my mind like this is why i made this around you know that time and yeah. Um, it's just cool. It just creates a cool connection. To yeah. It. The memory connection, I think is what is what the biggest thing is for me. It's just like having an object, you know, a tangible thing you can hold and be like, wow, this just brings about yeah, this feeling of like, oh, I felt this when I had this experience with these people at this time, you know, and that's, that's what, what it is for me. And like, for example, Mike's, Mike's an incredible leather worker. Um, and he gave me a wallet for my birthday. So every time I go to pay for something, like I just subconsciously consciously think of Mike's work and like, damn, this thing's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's what, like you're saying, Emmett, that's what really draws people to buy any of the stuff we make. It's especially from Instagram because there's all that, there's that, that storytelling aspect, I guess, involved in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You brought up uh, something earlier, Emmett, that I kind of want to, um, just pick your brain about a little bit uh and i think you mentioned mental mental health several times and there's been you know some some uh you know craft people i follow on instagram that talk a lot about mental health and what mm -hmm. what the craft brings uh for them and i can speak to, to my own experience of it um i work a very very stressful job it's not quite nine to five but it is nine to five and, <laughs> and on the weekends and um a lot of what i deal with is life and death and um a ranger yeah that's true yep so, so, and, and more specifically, I'm a law enforcement ranger, so I do a lot of emergency uh, services and stuff like that, um, up on the Blue Ridge Parkway here in, in the area where, where we live. Um, so I once, I went trail up the Cumberland Gap. Oh, nice. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. There's a whole set of switchbacks. That's me. Yeah. Nice, man. <laughs> that's awesome. Nice. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, so you know, I come home or I wake up in the morning and it's like, you know, I go down to my shop and that's that's where I can de-stress, you know. Like being with family obviously and and spending time with my kid is one of the biggest things too as well, but you know, just 
when I'm working with my hands, I find my flow and it's just like I am in this little world and nothing else around me even matters. And it's mm -hmm. incredibly therapeutic. It's almost meditative for me. And uh, I've tried meditating before. I've tried, you know, I work out, I run all the things. But doing a craft, whether it's leather, uh, blacksmithing, or woodworking, is by far the most therapeutic that I've found, um, at least for me, you know, and it's super beneficial. So can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I know you spoke about it earlier and what it's, what it's done for you, just having such a rich uh, craft that you do. Well, first of all, I'm very lucky that I've never suffered from depression. I, I know people who have, and it's a, it's a much darker beast than any ennui that I might have at various points. I think one of the reasons why I've been lucky to not suffer from depression is that I found this thing in my life that I do almost every day, and it, it really keeps me balanced. Mm. Um, I feel it when I, you know, when I have the, when I'm working at the Christmas trees, I don't carve for two months and I'm doing other things that in many ways takes the same place, but, um, but I feel it. And when I pick it back up again, I have that sense of, oh, okay, here I am in my body doing the thing. Mm. And I, when I think about how I want to carve spoons for the rest of my life, it's not because, well, there, there are. There are other reasons, but the biggest reason is because it, it is a practice. It's a, it's my meditation. It's a practice that I do that, that grounds me in the actual present day, the actual moment to moment reality of my life and my body. And, and at that nexus point allows me to explore a bunch of things having to do with design ideas and, and the reality of the world and all of this stuff. But, but at its core, it's just me with my body doing a thing. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it used to be when I started and it, it was about my mental health when I had uh, little kids, it was about stacking up something concrete. You know, I had a jar on the mantelpiece that I put the finished spoons in and it mm. did me a lot of good to see that jar get full mm. because I could point at that and say, if I did nothing else concrete today, I did that. I made that. And it, it was kind of this sense of, I think a lot of times we can feel like we're, we're drowning in a world that won't even notice if we're gone. Yeah. And to make an object that will stick around or go off to be its own thing feels like a, an impactful act. Mm. And so to create, you know, a, a growing number of those things was a way for me to, to mark the days of my life in a way that were not being marked by my child growing up. Because yeah. huh. and, and since then, I've actually found that it's really, it's better for my mental health to not focus on the finished object at all and i actually really prefer to have things go out the door as quickly as possible if i could, if i could figure out how to make a living by carving a spoon and then chucking it out the door and have it disappear <laughs> i would do uh but the best i can do is go to the post office once a week and just ship everything off yeah um <laughs> because it, because it has become about the action it has become about the, the actually doing it and then to the extent that things stick around it's only because it's helpful in terms of thinking about design and mm. and, and all sure. that but but it 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 is 
it's about the action for me. And I, and I think that it will continue to feel that way as I get older. And that's what I anticipate. You know, it's not something I ever want to retire from. Mm-hmm. And actually I have a daughter's godfather is a dear friend of ours. Who's a world-renowned glassblower mm-hmm. and glassblowing business because it costs so much money oh, yeah. to get the going, yep. to buy them, you know, to maintain the shop and all that. And even though he had a successful business, it's not the sort of thing that he can easily wind down. Yeah. He has to kind of decide, am I done or am I not done? And he's, you know, not quite 70. And the thought of, oh, wow. am I really with this thing that I've done every day of my life for 35 years is a really painful thing. So yeah. I feel great that I've chosen is something that I will be able to hopefully continue to do until I'm like this 87 year old woman. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting, man. It is. We have a buddy that's a glass blower and I, uh, it is like, it's so different from carving because you have to have so much. It's, it's like being a, a welder or yeah. a metal artist. Like you just have to, or a blacksmith for that matter. You have to have so much more to really, you know, achieve yep. certain levels of creation. Yes. Um, like you can't just start <laughs> glass blowing in the corner of your bedroom. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could, but yeah. that's what's kept me in spoon carving as well. Like I know you guys are both uh, wood turners yeah. and I've never, I've yeah. never explored that. Um, yeah. Well, A, I never felt like I had a place that I could set up to do it. Yeah. Um, but B, I also was very aware that i I wanted to lean down hard into this one thing yeah. um, and that was going to work financially to do so and try to get as good as I possibly could at this, at this one thing that had this innate flexibility of being, of, of sort of asking very little of me mm. um, in terms of space or material or other equipment. Um, and so you know, when I built my shop, I was able to build a very small shop and yet have it feel pretty big inside because it doesn't have a lot of equipment. Yeah, yeah. And it's very hard to not hang tools on the walls, to <laughs> not have extra stuff in the drawers that I don't need. Like it is a, it is. You just like described being, my shop. <laughs> well, it's my shop is like being in the cockpit of an airplane, uh, of an of an early airplane, not like a Boeing, right? Yeah. With switches and stuff but like being in the cockpit of an early airplane where there's only the things that you need and there's nothing else and and it's built for this one purpose Mm -hmm. and there's a sense of that that feels really centering in my life when i go up to my shop to work it's like it's like a gravity well yeah instead of holding a million directions i'm pulled in one direction that feels very that's that's important i i can i can relate to the opposite feeling yeah (laughs) mike mike's a lot like you it doesn't take much for it to get that way for me i mean and maybe that's just because i'm i'm so used to it not feeling like that but if i let things pile up you know unfinished work or things that really should live down in the house or you know really anything other than what actually is there I start to feel pulled in different directions. Yes, I'm I'm incredibly that way too. I mean, I, man, I can relate to that so much. I can talk about this for days. Um, my wife is quite the opposite. I think she's she's more like she can pile things on the countertop and you know, and it just it, it doesn't bother her. And for me, yeah. I am just like if I see that, it's so triggering for me to the degree where I'm just like, 
anxious about it. I need to do something about it. You know, I start yeah. like just fuming, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I have this practice where every time I go down to my shop in the morning and that's the only time I have right now during my, my day to do anything crafty is early morning, you know, and I get up fairly early, like between four and five o'clock in the morning. Um, and I'm in my shop and the first thing I do is like, I clear my, I clear whatever is on there. It's like, if it's not organized and if there's nothing on my table, I, I cannot do anything. You know, I just, I can't find creativity. I can't start a new project and it's uh yeah it's just that whole process of going through just clearing your space and having things where they need to be so just to create efficiency at least for me it's so more relaxing and i enjoy the process you know one of the big things that changed for me in this last year was finally deciding within myself in the deepest part of myself that i was just going to be responsible for keeping our house to the level of cleanliness that worked for me because yeah. I'm like you, like I, I, it's not that I want things to be absolutely perfectly clean all the time, but they, my threshold of what I need is different than my wife's. And that was our, probably our biggest source of conflict yes. for years. And we've tried all sorts of different things and there's all sorts of guilt and bad feelings that we've had to let go of or yes. still live with. Yeah. And, and for a while we had a, we tried having a, a house cleaner. We had some friends who were starting a house cleaning business and we said, Hey, you know, it's Christmas tree season. I'm super busy. Let's have you come do it. And it was amazing. And then we had a different house cleaner and then she decided she was just going to do local stuff. And I, I said this last year, you know what, instead of trying to find someone, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to spend three or four hours a week cleaning our house. And I'm, and at the same time, I'm also going to just within myself completely adopt full responsibility for I'm the one cleaning the house. And in some ways, that's for me to say, because I don't have a commute. My wife has a, you know, half hour commute each day. So that's an, that's an hour a day that she's in the car that I'm not. So right. just that right there, it means that I hold down a lot more of the domestic port. But there was a, I don't think I anticipated this, but I feel so much lighter hmm. having just said to myself, it's on me. You know, if right. I want the toilet cleaner, I clean the toilet. If right. I want the kitchen counter cleaner, I clean the kitchen counter. And if she does yeah. anything, I feel grateful that she does it. But I'm not thinking, oh, she's finally doing her share. Mm. And it's such a nicer place to be than where I was before. Yeah, you, you become you become less resentful. I think that was the biggest thing for me. And I mean, obviously, we can talk about this at length. Uh, maybe it's an off-topic conversation, but um, I think it's important because I think there's some there's some. I guess you can relate it to, you know, managing your shop, you know, the, the tools and you're just the space that you find creativity in and you can be productive in. I think it's, it's, it's very, it's, it relates for sure. And I think, um, for me, yes, that relationship dynamic and that dynamic in the household can be, can play out in a lot of different ways. And like you said it best, I think just, just feeling lighter when you've done it yourself and then being grateful for whatever your significant other does I think is a good yeah. place to be because just, you know, having, wishing that they would do something that you're not asking them to do <laughs> is not a place to Co be. It's called a covert contract. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> asking them to do it if it's not like a one-off, hey, would you be willing to do this thing for me? Right. But if it's like, you know, I'm reminding you again by asking you. <laughs> it's just it's not as fun, as much fun as, as just taking responsibility for it. And I'm yeah. embarrassed that it's taken 16 years to get to this place. But <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, you know, 
my wife better. at times thinks for me it's about control like you know do i like it's just having more control over my space and you know i think yeah. like i have like borderline ocd and this is like <laughs> just like oh, i need things lined up or i need things organized in a certain way that you know she find it to be like a mental health thing and i'm like i mean it could be but it's i enjoy the process it's like i find a lot of joy in the process of organization and like setting things aside and having a clean house and organized room and uh, Tell me if you know, I, I suspect a lot of it actually is is habits that you've learned professionally, right? Yes, I, I suspect yes. that part of what you are trained in is to, to always be ready to move in whatever direction, in whatever capacity is oh, yeah. needed. That's Mike's, very true. Mike's very vigilant. Very, very much so. It's almost reactive to the point where it, it does drive my, my, my wife insane that I'm very... Like it's it's controlling to the degree that like I am always mitigating for things that might happen, you know. And it's like that frame of thinking that's always on. It, it can be draining for other people to be around because it's it's about just managing for risk. At least for me, I, my my wife thinks it's so funny that you know I won't go cross country skiing with the girls without a pack that has you know an extra layer of warm things and some toilet paper and a way to light a fire and, yeah. and you know, right. And then like, to me, it's just like, oh, I'd rather just carry it, you know, but it's for her, it's, you know, I'm, I'm always running after her telling you like waving a, a jacket because she went out <laughs> without wearing a coat in the winter time. Right. And I'm like, no, don't do that. You know, like be prepared. Yes. Yes. You know, so here's, here's an interesting angle we can take this is, is, you're talking about that discipline as being a, a source of of creativity for you. And and I have actually found that the best thing for my creativity has been carving things that are that I that are commissioned to be carved. Oh yeah. Because yeah. because when I go up to my shop and I I am I'm just picking th from a list of here's the things that need to happen. What do I feel like doing right now? What makes the most sense to do right now? And then it's sort of like, okay, so you're carving this. What ends up happening is that my creativity that's sort of waiting to be there gets expressed through my carving rather than being expressed through what should I do in the first place? Mm. And, mm. and I especially feel this on the, so I have this um, spoon of the month club that takes up about two weeks of my time each month. And I carve a big batch of the same thing for all the people, you know, the same thing for, for all the people who are in the club. Right. And, and what I find is when I'm carving the same thing over and over and over again, my creativity comes out in, in, in tweaking the design. And that for me is really my happy place because right. I love thinking about the, the design of an implement, how it's used, how it can be made, how, how, how it interacts with the material that it's made out of and and the 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 creativity that goes into that is specifically there because there's I'm not asking myself what should I make I know what I'm making it's just a question of the details yeah and and that's really fun huh you do yeah uh, that's a I think that that spoon of the month club you do is really cool because I've Actually, this is a good segue because I really wanted to ask you about your designs because you have a really interesting rubric of designs, I would mm -hmm. call it, um, especially the way you've kind of codified them with these bird names. Um, and you have you have quite a lot of designs you do now. I mean, what is it, like 30 so, designs? So the bird, 
The bird, yeah, it's about 40. Uh, nice. The bird name came about because I started having these ridiculous conversations with people where they would say, you know, I want, I want a cooking spoon. And I was like, oh, which one? You know, then they tried to describe it. No, it's, it's actually what they want. And then they have to send me a photo. And yeah. I realized, I, I looked around and realized that some people were naming their forms. I think in particular, E.J. Osborne used to name their forms. And, uh, and I realized that that was a really clever way to just sidestep the whole problem. You know, mm. they could say, I want one of this and one of this and one of this. And they don't always, you know, we still do the song and dance sometimes, but it, it really helps clarify things. Cause I can say, do you want this? And then they can go look at the name and it just helps them do it. And so I chose birds because I wanted them to also kind of feel related to each other, like to have oh, yeah. like, a, like a taxonomy. Yeah. Yeah, why do you why do you choose that name, right? If it's all random, then it's ugh, it, it doesn't it doesn't build anything. And I I sort of I got down to where I was like, there's a lot of fish and there's a lot of birds, but people have way more bad associations with fish than they do with birds. That's so true. let's go with that birds. And I also thought about that Portlandia episode where they uh, the, the the put a bird on it store right where it's like this entire store in portland oregon like and obviously this is apocryphal and sort of for a comedy show but there's an entire store where people put a bird on it it sells better if you put a bird on it you know you got a coat put a bird on it you got a book put a bird on it you got a wallet put a bird on it <laughs> that's funny i haven't seen that mike's a mike's a portlandia guy aren't you i've i've seen the show a few times it's just yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm, my favorite show is the, is the office, so I, I can't. I gotta be loyal to, to my office. We just started showing that to our girls, and they love it. And oh, I had how amazing it is! It is so amazing. Yeah, it is incredible. Okay, I haven't seen it. Let's not get too too down the, the rabbit. <laughs> yeah, let's not. Yeah, <laughs> next you know it's an office podcast. Oh, yeah. um, so you've got all these really really unique designs are just unique to you. And I, I, one thing about your design process that I've really thought is cool is how a lot of times it's like people asking you to make something like uh what's one, like an ice cream scoop, I think is one I've heard you talk about before. Um, yep. Or someone's like, Hey, I want a wooden ice cream scoop. You're like, All right, let me figure it out and I'll work on a design and yeah, make you one. All right. Yeah. I mean, basically none of the things that have worked out for me have been things that I came up with on my own. I guess yeah. the magazine. Yeah. Um, but, but like spoon blanks, not my idea. Somebody asked me to do it. Spoon okay. of the month club, not my idea. Somebody asked me to do it. Oh wow! Right. Almost all the forms that I not all the forms, but probably at least half the forms that I do is because somebody said, "Hey, can you make me salad servers? Can you make me whatever, whatever?" Yeah. And and that used to totally intimidate me because I didn't feel like my skill level was to a place where I could. Yeah. Um. And so I avoided certain forms for a long time. You know, I'd say, oh, you need the coffee scoop. That's just use a spoon, idiots. <laughs> yeah. I was coming from a place of me not feeling like I could carve a coffee scoop. Right. And when I finally got over that, I realized that it's it's just a lot of fun messing around with forms. And, yeah. and the Food of the Month Club in particular, there's nothing quite like carving 40 or 50 of something in a row oh, yeah, to sure. really get to a different place with it. And, <laughs> and that was a surprise for me. I mean, I didn't start out with 50 people in the club, but it was, I think I started with 12, hmm. right? But even then, carving 12 of something was something that I'd only done a handful of times. Yeah. And um, 
And it was such good practice. You know, I could see the evolution in the form. Just, I mean, I had this yesterday. I'm carving butter knives for the Spoon of the Month Club this, this time around. And I went in eh, with kind of like a mediocre butter knife design. And over the course of the first 10, it's, it's turned into this totally hot thing. Mm, nice. And I'm so jazzed about it. Yeah. But it, it had to evolve. It had to get to that place step by step by step. And each one was a little different. And I would take the things that were good and carry it forward and yeah, I I've, just love that. I've got one of your butter knives and it's one of my favorite. I just love the it's like got two different planes that meet and um maybe Oh yeah. Maybe maybe it's different than the one you were carving yesterday, but it's different now. Yeah, no, it's it's different. And that's you know, that's the other thing that I've come to realize is that my work has undergone different phases, I guess. I mean, I can I can appreciate now how someone and I am not saying I'm like Picasso, but I can appreciate how someone like Picasso would have a blue phase and then a red phase and that right, like sure. it never kind of made sense to me. But now I totally get it because yeah, yeah. if I were to look at it two years ago, I was I was way more interested in being absolutely precise and like having huh. these geometric that met at sort of precise edges. Yeah, right. Not not in. <laughs> facet kind of way but more like i'm creating rounded flowing lines that then meet at these sharper edges yeah and and that's not what i'm into now at all i'm much more into overall form and sense but i'm 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 adding little bits of ornamentation not for ornamentation's sake but because they're part of the innate design is mm. how i would describe mm. and then i'm and then i'm also getting really into bold tool marks that help me do that mm. um but that's something that I wouldn't have been interested in, nor could I have really done it to the level that I'm doing it now two years ago. So that's mm. that's fun part about this is that everything is everything moves forward, and what I'm able to do now is not what I'll be able to do in two years. Yeah, yeah, it's a really cool evolution to hear about. I think you know the the commission thing has. I think for me, uh, and I've had experience with this, where people will ask me to make something, it really takes you outside your comfort zone, and that's. For me, at least, I've been able to find creativity there because it's always intimidating to try something new. It's like, oh, well, this is what I've been doing. Let me just stick with that. Yeah. You know, like I like this shape. I like this form. This is what people buy the most. But when someone asks you to make something that you've never done before, it's it's a whole nother realm. And then where you go is like, you know, this is cool. It might actually just be a new foundation for for something you're going to end up pursuing. Yeah. And it's, and it's, I think the thing that people shy away from with commissions is that they don't want to feel like they're just carving the same thing over and over again. And I've come to really embrace carving. I, well, first of all, I have so many forms now that there's no way I'm carving the same thing over and over again. I'm right. a wide variety of things right. and kind of like, I kind of see it as uh, like a musician, right? You get good at Song, you get a relationship with a song by playing it over and over and over again. And then, of course, you're also interested in writing new songs. But then the new songs are always kind of raw and unfinished until you put in the time of carving them again and again. <laughs> so right. I'm, I'm right. You mixed here. your Don't metaphors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, I like that, know. carving a new song. That's good. Yeah, there's there's this this great neurologist, and I'm going to get signed here there's this great neurologist i'll listen to his podcast is you know like world renowned um i'm not sure if you've heard of it the huberman lab i knew you were gonna say that oh, yeah yeah so he, he, he talks about dopamine right and like the dopamine you get from you know because he he loves he's like dopamine is life right and for me like carving the spoon for the first time was like 
that dopamine spike that I got from finishing my first spoon was like, whoa, you know, like, and then you're doing the same spoon over and over and over and over and over again. Like that dopamine spike starts to level out a little mm-hmm. bit. And then to the, to the point where it, you might not get any out of, out of it, you know? So you're like, oh, I'm going to try something mm-hmm. else, you know? But if you stick to it and you actually stay consistent and you focus more on the effort you're putting into it, like the effort that's going into carving the spoon, right? Just the process itself rather than the end product, I think you will find it to be a lot more enjoyable, right? Focus on the journey rather than the outcome. And if you stay with it and you stay consistent um, and you continue to make that form, eventually, like you said, you're going to get to the point where you're going to make these little tweaks. They might not be very drastic, but they're so subtle that yeah. it's just going to enhance that whole thing, you know, so much more than that first my one voice, you did. Dopamine was coursing through my system just talking about this butter knife. <laughs> right. <laughs> I could hear it. I'm so jazzed about just this little, right? It's like this this epiphany I had two days ago of like, oh, I could do this thing. And then it makes so much sense. <laughs> and then I, and it was it was good, but it wasn't great. And then I tweaked it and tweaked it. And now it's great. And it's like, oh, right. but I still have, you know, I still have 70 of these things to carve. No, 80 of these things. It's like, wow. It's like, you know, I've got a long ways to go. Like the journey is just beginning. I wonder what it's going to be at the end, you right. know? Right. The I unknown. The, yeah. The unknown is, I think, sometimes what we could focus on rather than, ah, oh, what yeah. is this going to look like? I just want it to be finished already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny because I've, I've done a lot. I have like a, I just have these habits of spoons that I make. It's like a cooking spoon. I have like one shape that I just always make. I've been making it for years. Um, but I've experienced that too. Just like little, like weird little things that most people wouldn't even notice. And you just get so, I just, I find myself getting so zeroed in on like this one little thing. And like, but then the next time I go carve a batch, I like zero on some other little thing. And, right. um, yeah, that's the beauty of being, I guess, like an artist in, in a way it's, um, that's that's the art of it i think yeah i think a lot of i think very few things in life give us the kind of immediate feedback to a design idea as spoon carving and i think it's the sort of thing where you can go to design school and do a ton of sketching and a ton of prototyping and you don't get nearly the practice at that very thing as someone who just carves a spoon every day Yeah, yeah certainly and I think I think actually using the spoon, right? Yeah, like I mean, I, for me, it's like I used to make these spoons and it had these all these facets, you know, and it's sharp edges and it's like <laughs> pointy. Yeah, and then I would they would sit in a glass jar or I would just have them somewhere on display, and then I'm like, you know, what? I'm gonna start using these. So I'd start using them. I'm like, man, this is not comfortable. Why would anybody want to eat with this, right? <laughs> so it gets to the point where it's like, hold on a second, this looks great on Instagram, but does yeah. is there is there functionality? Is it practical? Is it comfortable? So I think using yeah. your own, your own car, you know, spoons that you make and just, cause that's, and that's how I end up tweaking my design. So I, now I round everything. Cause I'm like, oh, this is a lot more comfortable to sit there and stir a pot with rather than this really cool and, looking thing yeah. with all these facets on it. Right. And yet if you're going to make your living from Instagram, you need to figure out how to have it also be uh, a good photograph oh yeah, right like yeah, yeah. the aesthetics of course every yeah form, every form that i carve there's always this sense of okay i maybe i figured out something but it doesn't yet have that kind of that sauce that makes it zing in a photograph right like mm. um that form i did last october was a rice paddle and 
kind of had this idea that I wanted the rice paddle to have these sort of some sort of textured top. So it's kind of, you know, it's just like a blob with a handle, right? It's like, it's a nice blob, but it's a blob <laughs> with a handle. And you're aware of how much the concavity of a spoon bowl and the rim of the spoon bowl, you see that your eye sees those edges yeah. and focus on those edges and, and they create these beautiful curves within yourself. And a spatula shape doesn't have that, whether it's a rice paddle or a spatula. And so you need something else. You need, well, you need something else. And I thought, that the, these rice paddles were going to have these shallow grooves through them. And I mm. did that and it wasn't that great. And then, and then I was like, okay, well, what if I do a bunch of little uh, divots with the hook knife? And that was good, but it seemed too many. And by the, by the end, I was doing these almost regular, but not entirely regular, very large divots with the hook knife to create this almost hexagonal, mm. very dimpled pattern really popped on the photograph and it also really pops in real life like hmm. yeah like but i would never have gotten there if i was just focused on 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 just the form and what it needed to do hmm. like there's it was because i recognized this is not photographing well yeah. <laughs> you know like yeah. i got something out here huh. that that led me down that path and so i think that having those different tensions of it having to it has to be something that works really well. It has to photograph well. It has to excite people. And it has to be something that you can make in a reasonable time frame. Right. Lots you know, of constraints. Those are wonderful constraints. And, and I think constraints are such a great thing for creativity because it's, you know, when you go to write a haiku, it's the very fact that you have these constraints that make it a haiku that allow you to be more creative. Right. Mm. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a balance. It's quite a balance. And it does take a lot of trial and error. And in your case, it sounds like you've, you've gone through the process over and over again and, and, you know, and obviously found some success. Yeah. It doesn't get old. I will say that. It does not get old. <laughs> um, so before we close out, we're going on an hour and a half here. And I know we could, we can keep going. I'm sure of it. Um, I did want to ask a few questions about your Christmas tree farm because like I said, that was, I didn't know who you were, but I heard about your farm from, uh, I think it was Dave Jackie back in like 2009, 2010. Um, and I just thought it was such a fascinating system. So you grow Christmas trees in this way that pretty much no one else does, but basically you have, instead of treating them like, um, you would say like a long-term, like conventional Christmas trees are almost like, it's a perennial plant, but it's kind of like yeah. an annual. You cut it down and replant it. Um, yep. So you've got the system where you're you've got stunt you've got trees that have been being cut for what decades now. Yeah, sixty years now. Our tree farm was started in 1953. Wow. So actually, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so our tree farm was started by this old timer. Talk about a talk about a New Englander. He was <laughs> he's, he's a real Yankee. Um, who uh, got the idea from a neighbor of ours who's no longer around, but who who pioneered this way of growing Christmas trees. Christmas trees are a really modern phenomenon, right? Like yeah. in the 1800s, if you got a Christmas tree, it was you went out into the woods and cut it down. Or, you know, in the late 1800s and Victorian era, Christmas started to be something that people in cities would want a Christmas tree for, right? They'd celebrate Christmas before that, but they wouldn't have a Christmas tree. And then 1880s 1890s it started to be a thing to have hmm. a christmas tree and they'd ship in all of these you know just saplings from out in the woods and yeah. up north and 
but it wasn't something that people would consciously cultivate you just you know they like weeds where they grow and you know it's pretty easy to to get them and then and then this guy um in our town it happened was doing that um and he realized that on some trees were growing back from the the cut stump you know Hmm. pretty pretty tiny stump you wouldn't even consider a stump you just think it was a stub yeah and normally don't do that if you cut them to the ground they just the stump dies Ah. but if you and then there's a a layer or two of branches below the cut those branches will keep the stump alive and it will put out new shoots and it'll put out a new tree or it'll put out a dozen new trees all right it'll put out many many and what this guy realized was hey you know i can just i can cut them in such a way that it increases the productivity of this forest where i'm already cutting them naturally because i won't have to wait as long and i'll have all these natural seedlings but i'll also have these these cultured stumps and so he developed this way of stump culturing Hmm. it was a pretty brief window because he figured that out in the 30s right they were for 40 or 50 years they were just cutting natural trees and then he figured that out in the 30s and by the 60s or 70s um uh basically it it became there was something that happened with milk prices that basically it meant that a lot of dairy farmers found it economically viable to take some of their flat pasture that they would never have grown anything on except grass prior to that. And they, they, or, or corn, I guess, and they were planting Christmas trees on it. And so it became, you plant Christmas trees in a way where you'd have them in rows and, and be able to get in with a tractor. And between 1930 and 1960, say, there was this window of time where it was viable to grow Christmas trees as a crop but you wouldn't use your best land to do it. And yeah. that meant that you certainly weren't going to get a tractor in there, which meant that there was no point in having them in rows and having that kind of efficiency. And it was much more, you had a wood lot that was maybe scrubby and you were just, you know, you were doing it in a kind of more wild way. Sure. And so the guy we took over the farm from, he started his farm in 1953 within that window. And then he, he just happened to stick around, you know, I mean, the people are, most people give up on stuff. And the few people that are tenacious enough to keep doing it, most of them, it died with them, you know, and he, mm-hmm. he happened to be me and I happened to be in the right place to take it on. Otherwise there's no way it would still be going. So wow. as far as I know, the oldest continually operating example of this in the world, huh. there, there are a handful of places that do it also that are younger than our farm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, I was just I just filled out our USDA uh, census census form exactly right, and they, it's it felt almost ridiculous because they're like you know please list all of the inputs please list all of the equipment and it's like I have a picture truck and some hand tools and like no inputs at all for any you know <laughs> right. it's low overhead business you could possibly have yeah. with the exception okay there's no inputs you know wow. it's all managing this forest and and it's my labor and over the years i've figured out how to put in less and less labor um so now it's basically two months out of the year november and december yeah. i and i work seven days a week doing that and i earn you know probably at this point maybe thirty thousand dollars from that two months that's amazing. and then that's really cool and do everything else the rest of the year and i don't think about the christmas tree farm i don't do anything to the christmas tree farm i don't do anything wow. except go 
I mow, I scythe the meadows that are my truck approaches. Okay. Um, nice. So do you have to educate your customers? Like, I assume you have a bunch of like, uh, diehard customers have been buying trees from you for a while, but I'm just envisioning like the logistics. Someone comes up, I'm looking for a Christmas tree. All right, here's a saw Go over there and just, do you like tell them what to do so they don't screw up your, your stump culture? Um, probably a third of the people have been coming for 20 plus years. Oh, wow. A third of the people have been coming for as long as I've had it, which is 12, 13 years. And then a third of the people each year are new people um, who cycle in and cycle out and some of them stick. Um, and basically it's, if, if I were transitioning in a conventional Christmas tree farm, to this style of thing, you would have to have a lot of signs educating people yeah. about where to cut. Or, or actually what you would do is you would, excuse me, you would cut out some branches so that they would say, ooh, I don't want to cut below there. Yeah. I don't want to cut it because there's this big bald spot, right? Yeah, what yeah. you essentially do is you move the stem by cutting out some branches around it sort of right above where you want them to cut. And then they'll naturally cut there. Sure. And I do that, but I don't go through and do that to every part of the grove every year the sort of every three or four years i'm going into an area and clearing out around the stems of the trees and cutting about half the brush off of each stump and using that for the reeds that i tie mm, and okay. the cell and and what that means is that basically there's there's a very small number of trees where that have never been cut before where they could screw it up but it just doesn't matter they just i some people are really worried about that. And I tell them, look, there's nothing you can do sort of hurting yourself that could really matter. Like, just go have a good, <laughs> That's awesome. you know, and so I like, I like that it's, it's very low stakes. Yeah. And I tell this to people who come and help me, help me in the, at the farm too, is people are like, oh, am I doing it wrong? I'm like, no, it's like, you really can't do it wrong. There's no wrong way. There's just, you'll figure out sort of the, the best, most efficient way to do it as you go along, but there's no wrong way to do it. Hmm. That's so cool, man. I one thing I, I love about doing these interviews is, you know, we we have a, a long list of people we want to talk to, but I just think there's so many aspects to what we call Sloyd. Um yeah. because you know it's yeah. it's been defined in different ways, but I, I'm not really satisfied with some of those definitions. Um but I just I see the part of just working with the trees is a big part of it. And whether that be harvesting greens or Christmas trees or like when we talked to a coppice wood company, you know, she's harvesting the hazel rods and making all kinds of stuff like that. It's just, there's so many layers beyond just the physical, what's like considered sloyd in a lot of people's minds, the spoon or the, the ax and, you know, the different kind of spoon carving tools. Right. Um, and that, that interaction with the landscape and just, I think what that's like a, I would call that your farms, like kind of like meta sloyd. Cause you're, you know, you're taking advantage of both this demand for this really niche product that's like oh people only want for like eight weeks right <laughs> and yep. you're taking advantage okay. of the fact that it those trees Here. have this resiliency to regrow from being cut um yeah so it's did i no 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 you didn't. i just i ended my thought abruptly <laughs> and done <laughs> the, thing, the thing that i really like about christmas trees is that it's you're catching people doing something that they really love 
right? It's like slinging ice cream. People are happy when they come to the farm, by and large. It's, you know, you're, you're part of their Christmas tradition, their memories that they're making. Right. And, and, and it also feels like um, it's the part of my life where I feel like I'm pro- most providing the thing that people actually need, mm. right? Like theme carving is all about what people want. Right. Yeah. And the Christmas trees, even though you could say nobody needs a Christmas tree, but like, come on, like <laughs> you're, you're going to need a Christmas tree this year. You know, here, right. <laughs> if this place works for you and you like how we do it, then this is where you get your Christmas tree. And it, and it really, it feels different. It feels much more essential. Like I'm contributing to the fabric of stuff that holds society together. Huh, yeah. um, so that feels good. And I'm glad I have it along with the Christmas trees. That being said, I'm glad it's not the only thing I do because I look at other Christmas farmers who do a lot of stuff at the the other times of year, planting and shearing and all that. And I think I just don't, I'm glad I don't engage with that. And I'm really grateful that I have the spoon carving as my, I would say my real identity now, you know, there was a funny time when, when they were, when first, when the trees were much more of a thing and I was, I was a Christmas tree farmer who also carved spoons and then they were kind of, uh on parody with one another and i was like well what do i call myself you know I'm like what do people how do people identify me but now yeah. i'd say there's, there's an ease that comes from it's like you know i'm a spoon carver and i also happen to have a christmas tree farm and that's nice to have that clarity it's oh. also nice to know how to say what i do because yeah, for a long time elevator pitch well a long time i didn't really you know like what do you when you meet somebody for the first time and they're like, what do you do? <laughs> like yeah. I used to serve it. It felt silly to say I carve spoons, but now I can just say it. And okay. I, you know, I never call myself a woodworker. Mm-hmm. I just, huh. cause, you know, I carve spoons. Like if you, I, I do basic carpentry stuff, but if you were to talk any sort of woodworking, I just, it's not my thing. I don't know much about it. I'm not particularly interested. I'm not, I'm not even super into like, not even super into wood as a as a material like i'm very into my particular wood that i'm carving sure. but i'm not at the phase that i think everyone goes through where you're just obsessed with different types of trees and what their material is like and all yeah. that and like for me it's much more about the meditation of it now and the and the form and and how far i can push things that's cool i find that very interesting because you know most people that i follow on instagram or i've come across in the in the spoon carving uh world they always branch out it's like there's always like i mean the percentage is probably you know if i had to guess it's like 80 percent of those individuals they'll branch out into making a stool or making a table or turning on a pole lathe or any, you know, and they'll just, they'll try different woods. I mean, they'll just, there's a variety of things, right? I mean, I myself did that. I know Mark does that. It's just, it's not, we don't focus just on the spoon and carving the spoon. But in your case, I think where the, the, most of the success that you've seen, and if I had to predict, I think you become so specialized at what you do that you've been able to, to find success, you know, probably the most success out of anybody who carves a spoon in the world because you become so specialized and your focus was so narrowed to the point where it's like, I'm just going to do this thing. Yeah. Out of and only cherry. Out of only cherry. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it so many times and so well that I will make a living doing this. And you know, there's, that's great because, and I think it's kind of how like your mind works to some degree because I'm kind of the same way. If I don't focus on one thing and one thing only and continue to do that one thing, 
I'm never going to find consistency and I'm never going to find, you know, uh, success. And if I just branch off and start doing a lot of random different things, it's like, you know, don't, I love this saying. I, uh, you, have you ever uh, watched a show, Parks and Recreation? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ron, Ron Swanson says this, uh, this thing one time on the show. And it's just like, I, it, it, it has forever lingered with me. Like, don't half-ass multiple things. Whole-ass one thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and that's kind of like, I feel like in your, in your case, you've done it very well because you, you narrowed your focus and you've been able to just, through all the trial and error, um, get really good at it. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And I think, I think um, I'm by no means think that it's the only way to successfully make a living doing the thing, but I think it's how I've found success has been uh, by getting, by getting good enough that, that, uh, that I've attracted the people who are interested in my work and I've, and and I don't think I would have gotten there if I hadn't reached a certain I think I would have attracted people, but I would not have held their attention. And you know, so much of my business actually is repeat customers. Mm. And I part of what they're coming back for is the journey that I'm on. And mm. and really. it, has, it has to intersect with their own lives, but when somebody is is you know, there's a there's a guy I talk with who's who's in Florida. Shout out to Brian Boatwright. Uh, <laughs> said to me the other day, you know, it's been so much fun watching you grow and develop over these years, and I'm so proud of you. And that means so much to me. And it's I think it speaks so much to. Um, I think what 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 I think is valuable, what I get out of carving spoons is, is that sense of having a discipline that I am on a journey on and, and seeking that next step in the path. Hmm. And I happen to define that journey as being spoon carving. I could have defined it as generally more green woodworking, in which case I would have branched out. And so I can see why people do it. Um, but for me, for a number of reasons, I, I chose this one thing. And, and I think you're right. I think it has helped me stand out in a field full of people doing very much what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then a lot of it has just been sticking with it for a long enough time and stacking up the different things that have worked out. Right. Um, you know, if we had had this conversation six years ago, it would have been a very different stack of things that I would be doing or doing. And I wouldn't have had three quarters of the ways I wouldn't have the spoon month club. I probably wouldn't be making blanks. I wouldn't, right. It's like right. none of the things I wouldn't have the magazine, none of the things that I am now seeing as a big part of the mix would be there because they take time to, to show up and develop. And mm. you know, someone who I think has done a really nice job of this is barn. Oh, yeah. Barn was yeah. always model for me of someone who let his obsession with this one thing turn into a whole bunch of other things yeah. and that was that stuck in my head it's like this one thing will lead you to all these other things that you want to do you want to write books 
this one thing will lead you there. You mm. want to have a community, this one thing will lead you there. You mm. want to have a stable income, this one thing will lead you there. Right. And it's about it's about dedicating yourself enough to it that that you get over the hump where it's not doing that and gets to a place where it is creating those opportunities for you. Right. I think and I think go ahead, sorry. Literally be like like the fact that it spoons for me is just chance. Mm. It's just the just what happened to me. You know? Right. Yeah, it's the thing that's stuck. But I've I've done a whole bunch of different crafts throughout my life. I've done a whole bunch of d- different things professionally with my life. And any one of them could have been the thing that stuck. Yeah. This is the thing that's and it's you know, I didn't I didn't have some epiphany that like this was the thing I wanted to do. I haven't wanted to do this my whole life since I was a kid. You know, like probably the thing that I wanted to do my whole life since I was a kid was was be a writer. Mm. And I am. Huh. But the spoons is the thing that that's that worked out financially. That was that sweet spot of something that people would buy, something I was uniquely prepared to do well and to have the resources to create. And the thing that just through sheer happenstance stuck around of all the things that I did. And I think that's an important that's, I think, the important lesson for me and for anyone who wants to hear it is that there's any number of paths in life. The one you are on is just the one you're on. And to the extent that it's successful, it's it's probably successful because you dedicate yourself to it. Yeah. That's very, I mean, that's very poignant. Yeah. I, that's kind of been what's been happening with me the past few years. I, I, I thought I was going to try and do a lot more Sloyd stuff for, for income, mm-hmm. but... I realized I had to focus on what I've been already dedicating myself to and, and, and am very passionate about and really grow yeah. that and realize that probably most of my woodworking is just going to be a hobby stuff and I'll sell a little bit here and there, but it's never going to be my main thing, at least in the immediate future. Narrow your focus, yeah. Mark. Yeah, I had to I had to start whole ass in one thing. Whole ass in one thing. Go <laughs> <laughs> half ass a bunch of things. I was half assing too many things. And you know, I think out of necessity, sometimes you feel the the dis- desperate and you feel the need to generate several sources of income, right? Like you're like, okay, this is not doing that great. It's not enough. So I got to do another yeah. thing, right? And then what you end up doing is a whole lot of things that, yeah, they're making some money for you, but there's so much more potential maybe in that one thing that you could do really well at. Um, versus all the other things, and then and then once you get that going well, you can start to fold in the other right. things. So. Right, absolutely. I Which think there's, what, there's basically, definitely basically what you've done, Emmett. Yeah, that's what Emmett has done, and I think it's a really it's a really uh, interesting way to think about it. Um, and it's it's it's. No, no. Go ahead. I I actually disagree. I think I actually think when you're starting out, you should you should do a ton of different things because you have no idea what's going to work out, right? And I think once you have some sense of oh i this is working out but i don't like it right i had a i had a scientific editing business with my dad for 12 years Hmm. because i needed the money and he could teach me how to do this thing that was valuable and it kept my hand in the writing and editing and i I, you know deepened my relationship with my dad but ultimately it's not what i wanted to do it could have made a lot more money doing that Hmm. had i just full ass that but i but it wasn't what i wanted so i did it it was an important part of the mix for many years it was how i kept us afloat but interesting but i let when i could when i had the option to let it go because i was earning enough money this other way and so 
and I've always had multiple, multiple irons in the fire. I think it's really important to always have the next set of irons in the fire because right. life churns and changes and you never yeah. know what's going to work. Yeah. And I think, I actually think that the best thing is to have things that complement one, one another. And sometimes it's because they complement one another in that the Christmas tree farm gives me a break, right? Originally it complemented the spoon carbon because it gave me a place to sell my spoon. Yeah. Now it complements spoon carving because it gives me this important break at a time of year when other spoon carvers are breaking their backs trying to carve as many right. spoons as they possibly can. when social media is saturated with people hawking their wares i step away from all that and do something totally different and then i come back in january when everyone's taking a break i come back full of piss and vinegar right and i've taken a break yeah but, but then, like the magazine is synergistic because um, because it takes this thing that I love and it takes these connections and then it, and then it, uh, allows me to take these other things I'm good at the editing and the writing and, and leverage off the voice that I have from the spoon carving into this other stream of income. It's a, it's a whole separate business that I have for that. And I, and I think it's really valuable to diversify yourself and not put all your eggs in one basket. Cause it, I think one of the real weaknesses that you see is when people are like, I'm going to just do this one thing. The wheel turns and that one thing stops working out. And you, if you don't have enough options to sort of figure out the next synergistic blend, um, uh, I think you get stuck. And so I think it's really important to separate the like making a living part of things from the, what is your meditative practice? And I think you get really good and masterful at something by sticking with one thing. But I think the way that you create a healthy life where you can sustainably support your family is by having multiple streams of income from multiple situations that are generating multiple opportunities for you. Yeah, no, that's certainly uh, is important, obviously, to know. I, the, I think the disclaimer to the point I was trying to make earlier is that, yes, starting off, I think exploring and branching out and trying different things until you find the thing, uh, yeah. I think, is, is very, very healthy way to approach any, any type of, uh, you know, craft or thing that you're trying to pursue. It's just like, in, sure. a, yeah. like in an ecosystem, you know, you till the soil, right. there's all these weeds and all these, all these opportunistic plants, and then depending on how situations go, it's going to go in one direction or the other. And it right. kind of settles into one direction. Right. And exactly what you're saying is what happened with the spoons for me, right? Like I was making all sorts of, I was binding notebooks. I was doing leather work. I was doing canvas work from my days as a tall ship sailor. And I was also carving spoons. And I had this vision that I was going to make my life, my, I was going to make a living doing handicrafts, right? Mm. And spoons is what I right. And so then exactly what you said, Mike, I pivoted and was like, I'm into this spoon thing because it's working. Right. And then I, I dove deeply on that. Right. And, and so I think, yeah, your point is, is well taken. Well, um, I know, like I said, we could keep going and there's a lot I want to talk about, but we'll have to table that for another time. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you giving you, giving you all, giving us all this time today, Emmett. And, um, we have our famous last question yeah. uh, and you've got a book coming out. Um, I don't, I mean, I feel like that's another rabbit hole if we go down that, but what's uh, just give us a quick uh, insight into what the book is and when it's coming out. Sure. I actually have two books oh. that are come or have come out. I have, I have, um, let me start with Greenwood spoon carving. Greenwood spoon carving is 
is going to be my magnum opus take on spoon carving. Mm, nice. um, I've, I've been writing it for three years. Uh, it's finally so close <laughs> to being done. Um, we've gone through multiple covers. We're, we're on our fourth cover design right now. I've got about 100 more pages of it to edit. And then we'll do a, a final wave of formatting and editing after that. Mm. Um, and that one I'm self-publishing. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be... If I had to guess about 250 bucks um, and you can only buy it on my website and it is wow. the equivalent class with me. It is, wow. it is everything you know as detailed as I can make it wow. all the reasons, all the little reasons why you do one thing versus another thing and what happens when you do it this way versus that way. Nice. And, and it's got hundreds of photos. Um, and I'm really, really of how it's turning out. And, and I think it's going to be, Amazing, and it will also be something that I will update over in future years, hmm. uh, which is the reason why I chose to self-publish it, is that I didn't want any, I didn't want to feel like it was a one-and-done thing. I wanted to feel like I could continually update it on my own terms hmm. going forward. Now, recognizing that that price point is too expensive for many people, I also struck a deal with um, the publishing company that publishes Wood Carving Illustrated magazine, mm. and they just came out with a book that I wrote called the Spoon Carving Project Book, and you can mm. buy that now, hence the price. Um, and that book is a book of projects, so uh, it's 15 different forms, and it walks you step by step through carving each form. Nice, oh, cool. The self-published book is set up by topic, so it it. It talks about mental health and physical training. It talks about sharpening. It talks about roughing out a spoon. It talks about uh -huh. design. It talks about the professional stuff. So it's topic-based. The Spoon Carving Project book is form-based. So it walks you step-by-step -step through each form. Uh -huh. And it's designed to build one on the next. So we started with the simpler ones and then introduced concepts as we went along. Uh -huh. um, Said, when nice. it comes to the more like all the sharpening stuff and all that stuff it's one tenth the price and you're getting one tenth the information sure um wow. so but that's available now i'm also really proud of that um and uh and so you can just buy that wherever you buy books okay it sounds like one is targeted towards the hobbyist you know who just wants to try this on the weekends and one is targeted more towards the one who wants Enthusiast. to make a living maybe becoming a spoon carver Maybe not the it, it doesn't have to be someone who wants to make a living, but it's certainly someone who, um, well, first of all, I came to recognize that people want information in different ways. Right. I never really want, you know, I, I decided not to write a book that was project based because I looked around at all the spoon carving books that were out there. And I thought yeah. I, this part of the books has never spoken to me. Like I, that's not how I want to engage with the information. Mm. I want to engage with the ideas. I don't want to be led in hand in hand down the garden path right and and yet many people that's exactly what they want and so recognizing that i should do something for them also i think you know and then i was approached about this and i said well you know i'm already writing this book but there's this other way of doing it that i considered and chose not to do that maybe would be exactly what you're looking hmm. for so that's how that that worked out okay um See, I, even, I think i didn't even know about that book uh, with spoon carving Buying greenwood spoon carving is the sort of thing you should do if you are also buying a fancy axe or a yeah you know a top wood. It's like when you're ready to 
commit to dedicate, you know, to dedicating some resources to really upping your game. Yeah. It's, right. it's like a textbook. Yeah. Yeah. A really beautiful textbook. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And not a, bo- not a boring textbook. <laughs> no. Very can't nice, wait. man. Yeah, I can't wait to see it, man. Um, uh, thank you. So our famous last question, I don't know if it's famous, but it's our last question. <laughs> not is, a secret. <laughs> it's not a secret either. What, uh, well, I didn't, that was very poor delivery. <laughs> <laughs> Start over. <laughs> what does Sloyd mean to you, Emmett? It's complicated. <laughs> I don't, I don't have the heritage that a lot of spoon carvers have. Mm. that gives them a sense of rootedness in Sloyd culture. Right. Um, for me, it doesn't come with that interest in historical precedent. Yeah. For me, it is much more that feeling I get when I'm chasing a design mm-hmm. and it's evolving. And that feeling of agency that I have to chase that design, that, that sense that I get to do this, that no, you know, no one is, I'm not constrained by how this thing was designed to be used. I'm not constrained by this thing having to be an exact certain way. I'm getting to design it myself in real time. I think that's what Sloyd means mm. to me. Nice. Beautiful. Nice. Beautiful. Very modern twist to Sloyd. I love, <laughs> I love it, man. Exactly. This, this, is, yeah. this is kind of my point. It's like Sloyd is such a personal thing. And I think the word, it deserves to be broken free from the chains of yeah the whatever it was whatever it was thought of in the past because all the Scandinavian people I've met when they learn about Sloyd they're like oh yeah it's like about you know like carving wood and yeah all this stuff and if you really look at like the like talking to yoga it's like no Sloyd's about being it's like about creativity it's about interaction it's about it's not it's not this like process it's very much this it's more of a feeling and like an intellectual and in, in, intuitive yeah, slash intellectual and- thing. The interesting thing is that there's you can learn a concept by accepting how the definition that somebody like yoga who's clearly has the the pedigree to have <laughs> a very clear opinion about what it is and have that really be it. But then, you know, the three of us, we're interacting with Sloyd in a very different like we're interacting with Sloyd as it exists in the United States culture of spoon carving and green woodworking, mm. which has morphed it into a different thing. And so it's yeah, I mean, this is the amazing thing about language is that concepts and language evolve over time. And it's not it, the ownership of that idea doesn't stay forever with the, the originator of that idea. It it once it's out into the world, everyone gets to have their own relationship with it. And that's one of the amazing things. And it's the thing that allows it to grow and change and be embraced by many, many people. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this is, I think it's that same ethos that is a part of the spoon carving community that I really love and want to celebrate with the magazine and everything else that I do is that sense that we all get to explore this thing mm. and we all get to find their own meaning within it. And we all, uh, get to equally take ownership of it. And it's, we're not doing it with somebody else's permission. We're just doing it. Yeah. Mm. Love it. Well said. That is a whole topic I wanted to get into with you, but we'll save that for another time. Part two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is really part two. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Yeah. I really appreciate you giving us your time today. And yeah. we'll, um, 
yeah we'll put all the links in the description so people can that don't know who you are can can track you down yeah and we'll look out for your new book um we'll save our save our pennies up yes and uh yeah man just keep doing what you're doing and i appreciate you coming on thank you so much guys. thanks I mean, take care a good day all right man yeah, yeah. bye-bye All right, y'all. That was an awesome interview. Um, appreciate all sticking to the end here. Two hours in, <laughs> yeah, that was good. There's, that was I, great. We could have done a lot more. That was great. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thanks to everyone that's listening. I wanted to read a couple uh, reviews we've gotten on Apple Podcasts. I think something like eighty percent of our listeners use Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Uh, no, fifty nine point nine percent. My bad. But it's a good place to just you know. Go on there, throw up a rating if you like it or not. We don't, you know, whatever you, whatever you think. Um, you just be honest. Um, but we got a couple of reviews on here. I wanted to read. Um, let's see. Thanks to Tree Girl Maggie gave us an A plus five stars. She said, "As someone new to the spoon scene, I've been devouring these podcasts with relish. Please keep them coming. Would love to hear reviews for your favorite tools and makers as well." That's a good idea. Yeah, I that was good. About that. We should do a podcast dedicated, just one episode dedicated to tools. Yeah, and, I'm and, sure we could do yeah, a lot of them. Absolutely. Uh, BC Howard said, fill the gap in podcasts. This podcast is excellent. If you're interested in craft, working with nature, and the working with the land, you'll enjoy this podcast. Mm. Uh, sure, they sometimes nerd out on Sloyd-related topics, but it drives it dives into other topics too. The interviews are sincere conversations between people who, with common passions. Mark and Michael interview the great influencers in the craft, those who have raised the standards. Nice. Thanks, BC Howard. That's great. Thank you. We got Jay Jill, our, 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 our great podcast. Well done. Keep it going. All right. We will. Yeah. We'll do our best. We're yeah. trying. Yeah. Uh, to find time. <laughs> Wheatfield Woodcraft said, Well done. I started listening to this on a whim and I was. For sure, thinking I would just set this down as soon as I picked it up because I thought it might be boring. Yeah. yeah. Podcast can be boring. Yeah, for sure. Instead, I was delightfully surprised at the engaging discussion, history, tales, and inspiration. Thanks, guys. Keep it coming. Nice. All right. I appreciate that, man. We will. Yeah. That's very Again, nice like, to hear. we're doing this our way. If you don't like it, yeah. Find another podcast. You know, Anchor's <laughs> a free podcast, so you can use your phone. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. We got last one here Health Ranger 89. Who's this guy? <laughs> Uh, awesome podcast two talented dudes doing it right on the podcast slowed out who could that have been? i don't know who is that all right y'all leave us a review if you can share the show at some point we're going to ask you for some money because this thing does cost money but we're not ready to yet we're just getting our act together yeah um we got some shirts we're working on you know we're taking our time and we want to do things the way we want to do them and if you don't like it well i'm sorry that's <laughs> 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 just the way we do it having the lives we have yeah. But I uh, appreciate everyone here that listens and staying to the end. Mike, you want to say anything? No. Looking forward to the next one. Yeah. Send some, send us suggestions. If you guys have any suggestions on- We got uh, one suggestion. Okay. Uh, forget the guy's name. It's just it's a, a guy in Australia that carves spoons. Okay. Turns bowls. But yeah, send us suggestions. You know, right. Send us messages. I haven't been on Instagram, but I'll, I'll try to remember to check the Sloydcast Instagram messages or, or the stuff on there. But- yeah. Uh, I'll probably get more into that this year. We'll see. Certainly. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, and y'all take care. Slow it out. Slow it out.